It's always exciting to visit a new place and to finally see a thing you've been hearing about your whole life. Today was filled with that for me. From the Mississippi and Yazoo rivers to the Mississippi Delta, I got to put a face to the name, so to speak, of areas and landmarks that I've been reading and hearing about since I was a kid. All topped off with an unexpected audio guide and the meal of a lifetime. I'm Giulio Gallarotti, and this is Pack Light Season 1, A COVID-Friendly Road Trip. Before we start, I just want to emphasize that this was by far the best planned day of the trip. Day two. And you'll see why. But if someone asked, what was the quote, best day? Like if there were some scientific process to measure such a thing, this would be that day. Honestly, planning a trip like this has really made me respect travel agents. (laughs) Quick correction from last episode, when I was talking about alligators versus crocodiles. There are actually crocodiles in the Everglades in Florida. It's apparently the farthest north that the American crocodile makes it. I literally happened to read that on a tearaway calendar this morning. Anyway, I woke up in Natchez, Mississippi, feeling energized and excited about my next adventure. I was unaware that this would end up being the best planned day of the trip. I would arrive at my next hotel in the early afternoon, which I wouldn't accomplish again. Doing this gave me a chance to decompress and recharge before the second part of the day. I had to record my other podcast in the morning, oops. Something that was giving me anxiety because I was just nervous that the hotels wouldn't have good enough connections. I made sure I stayed at solid chain hotels most nights when I had a podcast recording the next day to make sure that I had strong enough Wi-Fi. I took a gamble staying at a random hotel like Natchez, but to my pleasant surprise, the recording went off without a hitch. I brought all my gear with me too to maintain the utmost quality, including two microphones, a ring light, an adapter for the microphone to plug into an iPad or an iPhone in case the computer cam was being wonky, which it tends to be. Anyway, crushed the podcast, and Francis and our producer, Chris Casso, who also produces this podcast, agreed to record at earlier times so that I could keep it moving on the road. Couple of homies. We finished. I skipped the continental breakfast due to COVID, but also because continental breakfast sucks. Also, let's be real and call continental breakfast what it really is. Frosted flakes and coffee. There's rarely hot food, and if there is hot food, it's probably gross. No offense to anybody, but people who feel that the free continental breakfast is a perk need to update their priorities. The back entrance to the hotel was a stone's throw away from the majestic Mississippi River. I was unsure if I'd ever seen it, which is unusual for me, but it's so long that I figured there was a chance that maybe I had seen it at some point somewhere in the country. I'd gotten to kind of see the view when I had arrived the night before, but this first early morning glance was very exciting. The air was still fresh. The mugginess and dense heat that would settle in later hadn't had an opportunity to grasp its claws on the day yet. At 9.13 a.m., I climbed the stairs to the scenic overlook right behind the hotel. I was standing on a ledge that must have been at least 50 feet above the water. The view was awesome. The river was wide and dark. I'd never gotten into too much detail reading about the Mississippi, but based on everything I'd heard, it seemed to be living up to its reputation. An impressive sight. My friend RJ had said I need to drive over to Vidalia, Louisiana as well, which was on the other side of the river. Even though I didn't have anywhere in particular to visit there and hadn't been planning on it, I figured what the hell. One massive downside about road tripping alone is that you find yourself driving by these incredible things 
and you either don't stop to take a picture or a video, or you try to do it while you're driving, which I did a bit, but obviously don't recommend. This is relevant here because I attempted to film as I drove across the river. Oftentimes, you just have to accept that you might not be able to capture the moment, and you need to just live it and enjoy it. I made it to a cute little park across the river in Vidalia. There, I got out to take a couple pictures of the river from River Love. I preferred the view from Natchez, but this was no slouch either. RJ had really romanticized everything about this place. And while it was certainly charming and had plenty of character, there were just normal people living their normal lives there too. As I was walking back to the car, this bird started circling around my head. It wasn't a big bird. Let's just say it was a sparrow for the sake of the story. I say sparrow because they're known, I think, for being kind of a nasty bird. But the bird started doing this thing where it would circle and then glide down, heading directly for my face, but then would maybe fly a foot or two over my head. It did it once, and then it did it again, and I was like, okay, this is not great. And then it happened again, and after the third time, I realized that this bird was coming for me. So I started sprinting to the car. <sighs> now, I couldn't decide what was more terrifying, the prospect of this bird colliding with my face or the group of girls nearby laughing at this grown man running away from a tiny bird. Anyway, I got back in my car and headed back to Natchez. I had a couple stops on the docket while in Natchez. The first was the Natchez Historical Park. One thing to be aware of if you decide to look at these national park sites, similar to UNESCO World Heritage Sites, is that sometimes it consists of multiple sites. So it's important to figure out the logistics because sometimes those sites aren't that close to each other. And other times they're closed. Not just because of COVID either, but for like renovations or construction or whatever. So make sure you check the website. Natchez Historical Park consisted of three different sites. The first was the William Johnson House. The wiki says this, the William Johnson House was the home of William Johnson, a 19th century free African-American barber and resident of Natchez whose diary has been published. Unfortunately, it was closed due to COVID, duh. I just assumed that things would be open since the South was supposedly more laid back about COVID. I at least felt reassured to see that measures were being put in place. The second stop was the Melrose Estate, and that was about a 15 minute drive or so away. The wiki says this, Melrose was the state of John T. McMurrin, a lawyer, state senator, and planter who lived in Natchez from 1830 until the Civil War. Both Melrose and the William Johnson House contained furnishings related to life in antebellum, aka from around 1800 up until the Civil War. The collection at Melrose's two-story Greek Revival mansion and its slave quarters include painted floor cloths, mahogany, a punka, a set of Rococo Revival parlor furniture, a set of Gothic Revival dining room chairs, and bookcases with books dating back to the 18th century. It felt important to try to see this kind of historical stuff while I was in the South, trying to learn more about our country's past to give some more context for the mess we had gotten ourselves into. How divided the country is, police brutality, and just the condition of being a black person in America, and all the challenges that come with that. I was naive as a kid thinking that people weren't racist anymore. I didn't really know anyone who was, and that just meant to me that people weren't. It's more complicated than that, obviously. One thing I've learned more about this year is the idea of systematic and institutional racism. 
That is an important detail in my opinion. A system set up over time to keep people of color at a disadvantage and to make life difficult for them, both intentionally and unintentionally. We had further to go than making sure people were more accepting of others. The way that we do things in general and our institutions seem to have needed an overhaul for a while. I spent the second half of the day listening to the Pulitzer Prize-winning podcast 1619, which provides a much more detailed exploration of this topic. And rather than trying to paraphrase some of the moments from it, I recommend listening to it yourself. It's great. Before I got in the car, I noticed soldiers jogging down the street. There was something out of a movie. There was one guy leading the pack and singing, and it was in the rhythm of like, I don't know, but I've been told. And then the group of guys is like, I don't know, but I've been told. And I took a video of it, and I can't really make out what they were saying, but it sounded something like, We my Greenwood 91. We my Greenwood 91. She did DT just for fun. She did DT just for fun. Anyway, I thought that was cool. <laughs> I looked into it, and there's a military school in the area, as well as the Coast Guard and National Guard, so had to be one of those three. I hopped back in the car to head to Melrose. Anyway, I got there, and it was also closed. COVID, of course. I pulled up and got out of the car to try to take a picture through the gate. I was a little bummed out that I wouldn't get to see it close up. There were a lot of buildings in the area, still functioning, either as inns or as people's homes, that were obviously former plantations. Most of the properties were really pretty, and I thought that it was valuable to think about how something so majestic and beautiful had caused so much pain and suffering that is still heavily felt today. Even though so many things have been closed so far on the trip, I felt that it was okay. I started to apply the same philosophy that I might apply to my comedy career towards the trip. Something along the line of, enjoy the journey to the destination. And that applied very literally to this trip. All these little historical sites and towns and what have you were just a vehicle to allow me to explore some new terrain in the greater sense. I'd gotten to see interesting parts of Mississippi that I wouldn't have otherwise seen by driving to Wesson, even though I couldn't actually enter the town. And similarly, getting to see what life was like in Natchez was even more important to me than getting to see some stuffy museum. As I drove around the town, I noticed that there were some nice streets and some not-so-nice streets. RJ had mentioned how it was so interesting that down south, in some of the poorer neighborhoods, people lived in these dilapidated houses that were literally falling apart, but there was a satellite dish on top, or people sitting on the front porch, which showed you that there were actually people still living in these houses. So far, up until this point, I would say that about 90% of the neighborhoods that I had driven through had been similar neighborhoods to this. Impoverished, a lot of abandoned buildings, decrepit buildings. Um, and it was just really interesting to see how people were living life on this route that I had chosen to take. I stumbled upon the third part of the Natchez Historical Monument by accident. I actually didn't even really realize there was a third stop. I think because the wiki page made it kind of confusing. But the final stop was called Fort Rosalie, a fort that had been controlled by the French and then the Natchez tribe. And when the French claimed the fort back in 1731, they basically annihilated the Natchez for good. If you want to read more about it, check out the wiki page. Anyway, I had driven by this spot multiple times throughout the day, 
and it just looked like it was something worth checking out. There were these steep steps up to what looked like it would be a beautifully manicured field, but you couldn't really see what was at the top of the stairs. There weren't many stairs, but they were just very steep, and I was curious what was at the top. So finally, on the third drive by it, I parked in a bank across the street and wandered over to see what was up. I climbed the stairs, and when I got to the top, it was just a beautiful, slightly hilly, but open picnic area. Beautifully maintained. That's when I saw the sign for Fort Rosalie as I walked down. I was glad I stumbled upon it, even though I just got to nod my head and say, huh, this was nice, before continuing on my way. On this particular morning, I saw a handful of people who kind of looked like maybe they were in the area to check out history, but it didn't seem like a heavily trafficked or touristed area. I certainly had never heard of Natchez before putting together my little itinerary, but Natchez definitely has a lot of character and is worth checking out. My final stop in the city of Natchez was the cemetery, which according to RJ, and only RJ, was cool and famous. I didn't want to take the time to research it more, so I just took his word for it. Many of my family members are buried in the famous Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn, New York, home to many famous deceased, including Boss Tweed and Jean-Michel Basquiat, just to name a couple. It's a gigantic and beautiful cemetery, so I feel like I probably have a higher expectation for a cemetery experience than the average grave-goer. The cemetery wasn't that big, but it was certainly interesting and pretty. I drove around a bit, taking a peek at some of the different ornate gravestones. It wasn't quite the New Orleans cemetery, but it was still cool. There's this famous gravestone of an angel. The description from JustRabbits.com is as follows. The turning angel, as it is called, supposedly watches people as they pass by the cemetery at night. On March 14, 1908, an explosion at the Natchez Drug Company killed 12 employees and destroyed the business. The owner purchased this lot to bury his employees and erected this beautiful angel statue in the memory. <laughs> kind of spooky. I tried to film as I drove slowly down a road perfectly covered by trees on either side, forming an eerie canopy of shade. The cemetery was definitely cool, and I wish I had some more time slash had planned better, but it was a last second addition, so I didn't want to beat myself up over it. Next stop was the Natchez Trace Parkway. In my opinion, there's nothing better on a road trip than a destination that needs to be driven down. You don't need to stop, and you can continue to make good time, a principle important on any road trip. The Natchez Trace Parkway is a 444-mile road and scenic drive through three states. It roughly follows the Old Natchez Trace, a historical travel corridor used by American Indians, European settlers, slave traders, and quote, cane tucks. The definition of a cane tuck is a native or resident of Kentucky, especially one who has a quote, rustic character, whatever that means. I googled a couple cool stops along the way. I would only be taking the parkway up to Vicksburg, Mississippi, which was about 75 miles away from Natchez. The parkway starts at Natchez, but it ends up in Tennessee. And it was gorgeous. A two-lane road, green, thick forest on either side, and a beautiful, bright blue sky with fluffy clouds. There were stretches where the dense greenery gave way to bundles of trees with long, skinny trunks. 
Not unusual for many of the national forests in the area that I would drive through and had already driven through, but with a quality where you could tell that this part of the highway was cared for with great effort. I saw numerous National Park Rangers vehicles along the way. Something about those long, skinny trees seemed like it could be really creepy at night or during a storm, so I was hoping for good weather. The parkway isn't for commercial vehicles either, so I imagine that it makes it much more lightly trafficked. I wasn't sure if it was because of COVID or because it was a weekday, but I maybe saw a dozen cars max the whole drive. Felt like my own little nature tour. I decided to make three stops along the parkway. The first was the Emerald Mound. The Emerald Mound, located at milepost 10.3, is the second largest Mississippian period ceremonial mound in the country. It's also the largest mound along the parkway. The various cultures collectively termed, quote, mound builders, were inhabitants of North America who, during a 5,000 year period, constructed various styles of earthen mounds for religious, ceremonial, burial, and elite residential purposes, dating from roughly 3500 BC to the 16th century AD, and living in regions of the Great Lakes, the Ohio River Valley, and the Mississippi River Valley, and its tributary waters. The mounds literally just look like a little hill that was naturally occurring, though they're so nicely formed that you have to suspect some sort of man-made situation. I walked up to the top, looked around, and then went back down to the car. The coolest part about it was how there was literally no one around. Always adds to the ambiance for, quote, ancient sites. The next stop was at mile 42, the Sunken Trace Trail. This trail was so heavily traversed over time that the soil eroded and it was literally a hiking trail that was sunken deep into the ground. It almost looked like the trenches at the beginning of the movie 1917. It was like that deep and narrow. I didn't do the entire path because there was something creepy about being that alone in the middle of the forest when I hadn't seen basically anyone. I picked my battles with hiking appropriately during the trip. The last stop, which I was the most excited for, 55 miles in, was a ghost town called Rocky Springs that had been completely deserted. I expected a bunch of creepy abandoned buildings. And this day had already been a little creepy with all the stuff in Natchez, the cemetery, these weird, lightly traveled tourist spots, the woods and such. I was grateful that the weather was holding up. The problem with the ghost town is that it was literally a ghost town. Like there was no evidence that a town had ever been there. There was one rusty safe and like a couple pieces of metal with placards explaining that it must have been from the town at some point buried in thick forest with like a little path. Not that exciting. The best part was a seemingly deserted but apparently active church. The church had nothing to do with the ghost town, but something about a small active church in the middle of the forest is cause for partial concern. The church was brick with two small entrances, shuttered windows on the side of the building, and a big arched glass window in the front with a narrow fixture on the top for a bell. Perfect setting for a horror movie. Upon exiting the path, I had a welcomed interaction with people, but it was the classic interaction that I have with people when I'm in an unfamiliar place. I, for some reason, when people in a given place talk a certain way, I unintentionally do their accent, like trying to fit in or something. It's so weird. If I'm anywhere besides America that isn't a native English-speaking place, I put on like a mild Italian accent with a tinge of a British accent, like an Italian person who learned English in the UK. I do this without thinking. Like, sort of like this. I talk like this for a little bit. Um, like, maybe I have some fear that I'm going to get judged for being an American or something. But in the UK, I do like a slight British accent. Not even an actual accent, 
just like speaking normal American English through some sort of weird, ambiguous filter where I'm not like really talking a British accent, but I sort of am. And it's like weird, sort of. Anyway, when I walked off the path, this guy approached me. He and his family had just finished piling out of a van, two adults, including him, and three kids. They were likely having some summer COVID-friendly fun, just like me. I had seen him reading some of the placards in the lower parking lot as I drove into the area. Anyway, he walked up to me with a very thick Southern accent and goes, What all in there? I honestly didn't understand him at first because of how thick the accent was. So I said, Sorry, what? And he said it again. What all in there? Which I assumed meant, what's in there? Like, what's the deal? And for some reason, without even thinking, I responded in a Southern accent, saying, I ain't much back there. A couple of rust pieces of metal, that's about it. You have a good one now. Like, I don't even, that's not even really a Southern accent. That's just some created accent that I just made up or something. <laughs> I laughed at myself as I walked to the car. I need to stop doing that. It's weird. Anyway, I was done stopping for now. Time to get to Vicksburg. During the drive to Vicksburg, I started to feel chest pain. I thought maybe it was from like holding the wheel the same way for too long. I'd been holding it with my left hand up top. But I'd been feeling some chest tightness in Florida too. But it's also not a surprise that the second I got distracted, I would completely forget about it and it wouldn't seem to bother me ever again. But anytime I started thinking about it, I would conjure up all these crazy diagnoses. Anything you think is wrong with you. If you're alone for long enough, you will become convinced that something is wrong. And it's also worst case scenario. So if you're ever traveling alone and you start to feel this way, my recommendation is just to call one of your friends and talk to them for a while. It'll make you realize that you're probably tripping. I arrived to the Courtyard Marriott in Vicksburg, Mississippi around 1 p.m., which is not bad given how much I had accomplished this morning and how far I had driven. Same as last hotel, staff wearing masks, big fiberglass divider between me and the counter person. But this hotel was much more corporate. It was on a street that may have literally been called Corporate Row, like reserved for people in town for business. I wanted to make sure I had a good setup to record my podcast the next day. This hotel was a couple bucks more expensive than the last one, but still within my budget. I was satisfied. I had one major destination to stop at in Vicksburg, and I hadn't done much recon, but it seemed like there was a charming little downtown that I would definitely check out for my next important stop, lunch. I had been bragging to Hillary previously about how I would probably lose weight on this trip because of how infrequently I was eating. But after yesterday's meal and looking at the menu of my next stop at Rusty's Riverfront Grill, it became very clear that weight loss might not be on the agenda. I tried to order something relatively healthy while still getting a taste of Southern cooking. I decided to go with the blackened grouper, side of sweet potato, and the fried crawfish appetizer. <laughs> had to do it. Not exactly healthy, but not not healthy, right? That's definitely a reach of a statement. Anyway, the restaurant was located across the street from some sort of steamboat museum that was housed, as you might imagine, by a big steamboat. It was nice to see one as my dad had asked me about that the day before, 
so I got to tell him that indeed I did encounter a steamboat. One of my podcast listeners made a great suggestion that I would likely take him up on in the future. He said it would be worth my while to look up museums in the small towns and cities I drove through, saying that they were super quirky and cool. COVID wasn't the proper time to use that strategy, but definitely noted for future adventures. I walked in the restaurant and it was fairly crowded. I'm pretty sure they were doing social distancing seating, but it still surprised me. I assumed that these restaurants wouldn't be open for dine-in for whatever reason. I mean, it's probably because in the Northeast, literally nothing was open still. There was outdoor seating available too, but I had called it in for takeout and didn't feel like sorting this all out, even though it wasn't a big deal. I was starving. So I took my food across the street, down by the Yazoo River, in this little children's park that was empty. I found some sort of electrical box that was about chest height, put my food on it, and ate the delicious meal standing up. I only ate 75% of the crawfish to convince myself that I had self-control and that I was taking measures for portion control. Wishful thinking. It was a huge portion. I also felt like kind of a creep hanging out at a children's park by myself, even though, fortunately, there were no children there. It reminded me of a time I went to a children's museum in Little Rock, Arkansas, on my buddy Hans's wedding weekend. Hans is also the person who recommended crawfish, explained hush puppies to me, and gave me the incredible recommendation for dinner that I would be experiencing later in the day. Anyway, that weekend in Little Rock, a couple of friends and I went to the Science Museum. There was a tornado exhibit where they put you in a fake basement and try to recreate what it would be like to be in your little storm shelter during a tornado. I went in alone and was accompanied by a dozen little kids whose parents escorted them into the exhibit but stood outside since it was a little uncomfortable inside. It was kind of a small, contained area. And they recreated this crazy tornado where the lights go out and you're sitting in the pitch dark for extended periods of time. The lights flickering and all sorts of stuff. got all scared and oohed and odd, and here I am, a man, alone in a room with a bunch of little children in the pitch dark. I thought to myself, this is not a good thing they're doing here. Hopefully they keep track of the rogue adults visiting science museums in general. Like as a general rule, if you're an adult visiting a science museum by yourself, they should make you show your ID or something. <laughs> anyway, back to current time. As I stood and ate my delicious meal. I couldn't help but think about how the Yazoo River was the southernmost part of what constitutes the Mississippi Delta, a broad floodplain that was cultivated for cotton plantations before the American Civil War. The muddy waters were gently floating by as I inhaled my food. I was tentatively planning on driving into the heart of the Delta later that evening en route to dinner, and I planned to sink my teeth into some corresponding podcasts to both educate me and heighten my experience. I finished my lunch and walked back through the town. It was a narrow little commercial stretch with some charming shops with what felt like a bit of Southern charm. I saw an old couple sitting outside. Father. To which I replied in my subconscious Southern accent that I had become accustomed to unknowingly putting on. Take care now. <laughs> my next stop was the Vicksburg National Military Park. I took the risk on this trip of not really reading into what these national monuments or parks were. They were all so different that it was hard to really know what to expect, which I find exciting. The only problem with this was COVID, enclosures and limitations, so as the trip went on, I did a bit more recon while trying not to spoil the surprise. I pulled up to the park and snooped around a bit. 
I was expecting that maybe this park would just be one statue or something, but that was not the case. Here's what the wiki says. The park includes 1,325 historic monuments and markers, 20 miles of historic trenches and earthworks, a 16-mile tour road, a 12-and-a-half-mile walking trail, two antebellum homes, 144 emplaced cannons, the restored gunboat USS Cairo, and the Grants Canal site, where the Union Army attempted to build a canal to let their ships bypass Confederate artillery fire. Literally the opposite of a single monument. This was a giant, sprawling situation. There was just one problem. It was closed. Even though I had already experienced some pretty cool stuff on this trip, I was bummed out at the percentage with which closures and such were affecting my itinerary. I saw some older guy walking around the barrier and onto the path. I followed him until I got close enough to ask him what he was doing. He told me that the walking trails were in fact open. Big development. So I set off on the trail behind him. The trail I walked on was about four miles and it would take me 90 minutes if I took my time, which is perfect. I suddenly felt like a person who had an incredible sense of time management and felt confident that I had crushed it planning the day, which was a total 180 in feelings, just by this path being open. It was extremely hot, as you might imagine, and muggy, but it would be nice to walk off the crawfish. A little backstory on the Battle of Vicksburg. Taking place from May 18, 1863 to July 4, 1863, the siege of Vicksburg was a great victory for the Union Army. It gave control of the Mississippi River to the Union. Around the same time, the Confederate Army under General Robert E. Lee was defeated at the Battle of Gettysburg. These two victories marked the major turning point of the Civil War in the favor of the Union Army. I was stopping to take pictures of every monument I saw, and I remembered how I had been thinking forever how taking pictures of monuments with an iPhone straight up does not do the monument justice. I started thinking about a potential new policy that I would likely not have the self-control to apply to my life. But the policy is this, and I think you might agree. If you're looking at something cool, like a monument, for example, instead of wasting all your time and energy and focus on taking and hoarding pictures of it, Google a better picture of it and save it to your camera roll. The file size will be smaller, and you can show whoever you're trying to brag about your travels to this particular picture, which they will find more impressive than any picture that you can take yourself. You can tell them, I took this picture from Google because the one I took with my phone sucked. Unless there's something special going on with the sky or if you want to be in the picture, I feel that this is the way to go. Try to enjoy these moments instead of being a digital hoarder of photos you're never going to look back at. I might have maybe awkwardly asked people to take pictures of me in front of some monuments or sites, post to Instagram or whatever, but it's kind of weird to ask to begin with and I was rarely encountering people, plus I didn't need people touching my phone during COVID. Anyway, I say all this, but I continue taking pictures of everything for the entire trip. <laughs> this entire family were out for a jog on the trail as well, separate from the one guy who I had asked about the trip. That guy, who I had entered the park with, was moving pretty quickly too. I didn't catch up with him till about 2.5 miles in at the Illinois State Memorial, which is the most impressive monument in the park. The running family were running at all different paces and were all different ages. I didn't even realize they were all together until I saw them later in the parking lot all piling into the same van. And I thought this was kind of an odd, but a lovely activity. The youngest member of the group was literally five years old, and he was in the lead and being cheered on by his family. The oldest, presumably the dad, was in his 60s. 
And it was hot as hell too. Like what an ambitious plan to go on a family run in the middle of the day in the blistering hot summer heat. Later down the path, one member of the group, who must've been like 25, started approaching me as I took pictures and she yelled, hey. Now I'm not so used to this. So I was kind of worried, like, did I do something wrong? <laughs> I looked around to make sure she was talking to me. So I was like, hey. <laughs> she then goes, are you from here? I was thinking maybe she wanted directions or something. So I just said, no. Thought about it for a second and then was like, why? To which she replied, just wondering. And kept running. It seemed odd at first, but I reminded myself that people in most places are really friendly. I wasn't in New York City. I definitely wasn't in New York City. The park's very impressive. The path to what I'll call the main area, where I assume lots of battling occurred, is a nice wooded road, well-maintained, with monuments along the side. After about 15 or 20 minutes, you come upon this big open field with beautiful green rolling hills which are piercing my eyeballs in contrast with the bright blue sky. As I soaked in all the beauty, I tried to remember that over 40,000 Americans died in this two-month battle. The rolling hills were so perfectly placed and symmetrical that it looked like someone made them. The path circled the hilly valley from above, so you were looking down at it, thus literally giving you a bird's eye view of this beautiful field. When I finally made it to the Illinois Monument and took a peek around, the guy who I had been walking behind, who I essentially followed into the park, looked spent from the heat and was taking a rest. He was a little older and a little hefty. I had been impressed with his pace, so this seemed like a well-earned rest for him. He was talking on the phone with a loved one. It must have been one of his parents or his wife. Well, your A1C seems to be good, right? Did he say anything else? This conversation triggered me for some reason. It made me miss my family. There's just something nice about seeing people caring about each other. I'd been calling literally everyone that I feel comfortable talking on the phone with while I was in the car. And I, of course, brought my AirPods for this little hike as well. A hike was the perfect COVID-friendly activity, especially where there were no people around, as had been the case most of the day. Making phone calls on a road trip is funny because it's hard to hang up if you're sick of talking to someone. They know you aren't doing anything but driving. But ultimately, I welcomed the company. It was a long trip, and I barely started it. I'd only driven a couple hundred miles. Even though it probably seems like I've driven a ton already, the mileage would drastically increase as the trip spread out and carried on, especially with some last-minute decisions I made. I had been stressed out about my chest pain and thought at the very least I needed a little rest. I felt reasonably good after this hike, but it was time to go back to the hotel and take a nap and decide if I wanted to make the journey to my next stop, just for dinner. I was leaning towards maybe skipping it and eating locally, since this restaurant was 85 miles away. Not round trip, 85 miles each way, at least. I think it was a little more. Before I get into more detail about the restaurant, let me mention an unlikely advocate of making the trek, Hillary. Now she's typically the first person to talk me out of overpacking my schedule, but she even said, what do you have planned tonight? You might as well. And she was totally right. I even had time to take an hour nap, drive there for dinner, and make it back right around sundown. I was a little stressed out about driving deep into the Delta. 
a notorious impoverished part of the South. I'm not sure why I was stressed about it. I'm sure I had nothing to worry about, but the fear of the unknown, I suppose. What if I get a flat? What if I can't figure out how to change the tire? Irrational fear. Like, I can change a tire, but I just haven't really done it in a while. Like, what if I don't have self-service? And what if I'm stuck and people see my California plates and they don't want to help me? All these excuses were silly, and I agreed with Hillary that I should probably just go for it. And this idea for dinner was a new one that I had gotten from my buddy Hans a couple days earlier. The night before I flew to Alabama, I had wrapped early shooting my commercial in Atlanta. I went and did some sightseeing, and then I accepted my old friend Hans's dinner invitation. I'd been over his house the day I got in, but I hadn't gotten an opportunity to see his wife, Audrey, yet. And they're good friends, so I wanted to go over and hang. It was funny because they have a baby who's the exact same age as my friend's baby in Florida. And they have a similar-sized dog, so it just felt oddly similar in a way that made me feel comfortable, since it was a big part of my life in Florida the previous three weeks. Like, I understood the rhythm of that dynamic, you know? Hans is one of my best pals from college. We played on the tennis team together. I used to go over Hans's apartment in college, and his roommate was this guy Barrett, who was also on the tennis team with us. Now, Hans and I would just hang out and play video games, and one day, <laughs> Barrett came into the room and confronted us, and he kind of talked like this. So he comes in and he goes, guys, what are you doing? All you do is sit here and play video games and eat chips. There's more to life than eating chips. <laughs> this has been something that we still joke about today. Hans is Indian, his wife is Palestinian, and their son is named Wellington, which to me just sounds like the most American name of all time. Like somebody who literally got off the Mayflower, the Wellingtons. <laughs> but anyway, that's very American though, right? You know, all different sorts of backgrounds, all making sense together. It's the American dream, maybe. Anyway, Hans got this in my head that if I was in the area, I should try to go to this restaurant called Doe's Eat Place, D-O-E, when I was in Mississippi. He told me that it was one of the best steakhouses in all of the South. In fact, as rumor had it, according to Hans, Jerry Jones, the owner of the Dallas Cowboys, would park his private plane, try saying that five times fast, by the way, park his private plane, outside of Greenville so he could pick up a couple giant steaks before taking back off and heading to Texas. Hans also told me that the storefront itself looked like a bando. And for those of you who don't listen to Southern hip hop, a bando is an abandoned building. Makes sense, right? And that the inside wasn't particularly impressive but that you'd get the best meal of your life there. It was a 172 mile round trip to get to and from Doe's Eat Place in Greenville from Vicksburg. The idea of driving more than 100 miles in a day in normal life seems like an entire day's worth of driving. And having driven about that much already, this was definitely ambitious, but YOLO. I was sold in theory, and after laying down for about 40 minutes in the hotel in Vicksburg, I was ready to go for it. I approached the car and noticed there was gum stuck to my tire. And I had pulled in just far enough that the gum was extended from the ground to the back of the tire as if you were pulling it apart with your fingers. I convinced myself that this was good luck. So off through the Delta I dove. And dove is the appropriate term because the famously flooded land lived up to its reputation. This extremely fertile land that once gave rise to the economic power of cotton seemed overlooked and forgotten. I was starting to get sick of my music leading up to the drive, and that was part of the reason I threw on 1619. Hillary is in charge of an initiative to bring awareness about race stuff at her company, and she was tasked with finding helpful and informative materials to help educate people she works with. 
One of her recommendations was the Pulitzer Prize-winning podcast 1619 by Nicole Hannah-Jones from the New York Times. I never really listened to podcasts much, but I was glad I started to, and without a doubt helped me decide that making this podcast was a good idea. In fact, the following day, while I was listening to more of 1619, was when I decided that I wanted to record this podcast. I started the pod as I set off and quickly got wrapped up in it. It certainly heightened the experience because the area I was driving through eerily matched up with the stories that were being told on the podcast. Like they were talking about where I was driving. They were talking about some of the dark history of the Delta. And the sky was starting to get kind of dark too. It was a powerful moment. Driving through new territory with a corresponding podcast was for the most part a coincidence, but it made the moment intense and memorable. I kept seeing signs that said, quote, finish the pumps. I must have seen over a dozen of them. And I wondered what that meant, so I googled it. The land was so intensely flooded everywhere I looked. Trees and fields completely submerged underwater. I assumed that it had something to do with that. So in 2019, the Yazoo River, which I talked about earlier, flooded the area to historic proportions. Apparently, the EPA had voted against installing pumps in 2008. But now there was renewed support after this devastating flood to complete the project they had tried to start many years earlier. It was clear to me that these people felt left behind and overlooked. It looked like a tough place to live. As I kept driving, I started to notice Trump signs everywhere, and I started to understand how a person from here could support him. Feeling overlooked and forgotten by your government. There's no opportunities anywhere, your entire town is flooded, and no one has stepped in to help. Of course there's some appeal to a guy who steps in and flips the middle finger to the establishment and everyone in Washington, the same way that you wish you could. And even if his promises are hollow, or don't make any sense, and even if he actually doesn't care about you, he says he does. He's a guy who claims he wants to drain the swamp in Washington the same way that you want to in your own backyard. I'm sure there's much more to it, but this made sense to me. And it made sense why someone from this area might support a person like Trump. I'm not saying I agree with it, and there are plenty of people who could argue that they too are overlooked and aren't cared for by the government. All I'm saying is I understand why a person living in this area could rally behind a Trump. A guy who says fuck you to the powers that be. Those same people that have left your community to drown. Houses in the area were scattered. There seemed to be as many churches as there were houses along the route. And I'm convinced that you can build a church out of any structure with a roof based on the variety of churches I saw driving around. Dark clouds started to roll in. But after surviving my first major storm earlier in the trip, I definitely felt more confident that I could handle the weather. After about 90 minutes of driving and no bad weather, I finally arrived in Greenville. The first part I drove through was actually really nice. Nice little community with some beautiful homes, maybe the nicest homes I had seen the whole trip. But as I got closer to the restaurant, that changed a bit, and I thought maybe I had entered the rougher part of town now or something. I finally made it, and the building that housed the restaurant did not disappoint from Hans's description. A real hole-in-the-wall situation, as Hans described it. And quite frankly, a there-must-be-holes-in-this-building situation as well. <laughs> not the nicest building, but it adds all the more to the charm. The houses across the street from the restaurant were equally modest. The 
building has been in the family since 1881, but the restaurant itself started in 1941. This was the original location, and there are a handful more scattered around the South now. That, for some reason, seems like the classic second-generation move. Like, your dad starts the restaurant, and then you, the second generation, expand the restaurant, you know? Because now there's like four or five more or whatever. Anyway, you walk into the restaurant, and you literally have to walk through the kitchen to get to your seat. There are two or three different dining areas, but they all diverge in the kitchen. It's pretty cool walking through there and seeing everyone cooking, smiles on their face. In one of the YouTube videos I watched about the place, one of the employees described it as, quote, a hugging place, and showed her hugging a bunch of patrons. I was sad that random hugs were no longer appropriate. I would have loved some Southern hugging. The employees were a mixed bunch, all ages and races, and the smell radiates and hits you in the face the second you walk through the door. They seated me by myself in the back room. At first I was alone, but the room would end up filling up by the time I finished my meal. Zero people wearing masks, by the way. And though I thought maybe they were doing social distancing seating, I realized that it was just early because my part of the restaurant quickly ended up filling up. In their defense, there was zero COVID in that part of Mississippi at the time. Literally zero, not one case. So I felt comfortable that I was safe. It was a pretty basic menu with some specialty items that they had that day, including the different cuts of steaks. I listened to a group of older couples order. Everyone ordered a salad, so I figured that was a must. Hans told me I needed to try the tamales. Tamales are like randomly one of those things that I had just never tried up until this point. The restaurant was open from 5 p.m. till 9 p.m. I got there around 5.45, perfect timing. I could be back before sundown if it all went smoothly. I ordered a lot. I ordered two tamales, their salad, which I learned later is famous as well, and a two pound ribeye. That's correct, two pound fucking ribeye with their house au jus on top. Comes with a side of fries. So much for eating healthy. Had to order a beer as well, Modelo. Who was I? This was the least me meal ever, but good for me for going for it while I was on a trip. I think you'd be doing yourself a huge disservice by going someplace and not trying the food they're known for. I had to literally Google how to eat tamales earlier in the day because I recalled some sort of unpeeling activity. Tamales come wrapped in some kind of like banana leaf or steamed corn husk that is not edible. So make sure you peel that puppy off. The salad was drenched in some kind of house vinaigrette that was perfect. And the steak was bigger than my torso. She asked me what steak sauce I wanted. I said, what's your favorite? I don't remember what it was, but it was pretty good. And I was happy that asking for her preference paid off than it did yesterday in Biloxi with the po'boy fiasco. The room I was seated in looked like one of those rooms that would seat us in for our soccer team pizza party when I was like eight years old. Metal chairs, thick red and white checkered tablecloths, a basket of saltine crackers and a red basket on each table. And then a bunch of like nostalgic memorabilia and articles and such on the wall from decades and decades of press and news this place has been the center of. Clearly a landmark. I was having a great time. As the place got more and more crowded with big people, I started worrying about the future of my own body. But whatever, I needed to check that at the door at a place like this. One thing was for sure, every table of people looked like they were celebrating something. This wasn't an everyday meal, it was a special occasion. I ate every morsel off that steak. I was so full that I couldn't even make a dent in the fries. I probably had like one or two. A nice blessing in disguise was that I had no service for the entirety of the meal and no Wi-Fi to connect to, which left me alone with my thoughts and my gigantic piece of meat. The meal was amazing. There were no prices on the menu and I incorrectly assumed that it would be way less expensive than I thought. The opposite happened. 
The meal was $100, including tip. Just for me. I wondered if they had, like, overcharged me or something, but probably not. I did order a ton of food. And I wasn't going to ask. I was on vacation. Whatever. Happy to pay for a good meal. I tried to snap some pictures of the setup on the way out without making anyone upset at me. I got a few. But this was actually a situation, like I had mentioned before, where I didn't get the pictures that I wanted, so I googled some pictures of the interior so that I could show people what it was like. Check out the YouTube videos about this restaurant. It's an awesome experience. Doe's Eat Place, Greenville, Mississippi. On the way out, I drove through some more deserted parts of Greenville. Just vacant retail areas that, quite frankly, look like there has never been anything in them to begin with. It wasn't like when a supermarket goes out of business and the ShopRite sign is still hanging big over the vacant store. These buildings just looked like white blocks, one story, extremely vacant, no windows. I, for the most part, had avoided bad weather and it looked like I would be back at the hotel before it got super dark, both big wins. It had clearly rained heavily in pockets because beautiful rainbows were forming on the road as I drove back through the Delta. And we're talking full rainbows, none of this like partial stuff. My throat wasn't feeling great, kinda hoarse. My daily hypochondria began to set in. It was really damp weather, so I told myself it was allergies and that I was hoarse because I'd been talking on the phone most of the morning and into the afternoon. This seemed to make sense, so I wasn't gonna let it ruin the moment. I pulled over, seemingly in the middle of nowhere, to take pictures and videos of these beautiful double rainbows. I had seen an equally impressive one a week earlier in Florida and was happy to be in the midst of beautiful and open nature again. As the clouds started to clear and the sun began to set, the sky looked incredible. Filled with rainbows and dark clouds giving way to bright blue skies with a hue of pink from the setting sun bursting through the clouds. I had to pull over two or three times to take pictures and to breathe in the air. I made it back to the hotel right around nine. The sun seemed to set right as I got back to the Vicksburg area. Day two complete. I got into my hotel and slammed my head down on my pillow. I was exhausted. Almost at exactly the moment that my head hit the pillow did I hear a baby begin to start sobbing. I couldn't imagine that this hotel was crowded and it upset me that they would put a baby in a room right next to a guest when there are plenty of rooms open. Like the lady at the front desk saw that baby check in. Why not put the baby in a corner of the hotel next to no one else? It pissed me off, but... I would have a way worse experience in the not too far future. On the next episode of Pack Light, I'll be driving through some of the worst weather that I've ever driven through in my life. I make two stops at two unforgettable and remote landmarks and have a confrontation at my hotel with an uninvited guest. Check out my YouTube channel for the entire episode, along with a soothing visual accompaniment. And check out the Instagram, at PackLightPics, for some videos and pictures of all the stuff from this episode and more. And also, a checklist of all the stops I made if you want to do a similar trip yourself. There's a link to my playlist in the episode description as well. Message me on Instagram, at NotJulio. That's N-O-T-J-U-L-I-O. Let me know your thoughts, your suggestions, where you think I should go next, 
and basically anything you have to say, really. I would love to hear from you. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.